It has been funny. I was in a meeting yesterday and we didn't have the lights totally dialed in and my face was really bright and it made the background look like in complete darkness. <laughs> and everyone's like, it looks like you're taking like a middle school photo for a yearbook, like a yearbook photo. <laughs> oh That's what God. this looks like. Let's bring those back. Let's bring yeah. those back. Um, uh, we Yeah, we will. We'll bring those back soon. Coming soon. Okay. Talking <laughs> too loud. Yearbook photos. Uh, get your yearbook. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I am joined by the lovely, the precocious. Oh, is that a word? That's a new like, adjective. No. <laughs> okay, we'll start again. funny. Sorry, sorry. It's funny. All right. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I am your host, Chris Savage. I am joined by Sylvie Lubau, direct from the United States of America. Sylvie, how are you? Almost Europe, though. Almost. So I'll save that for what's got me talking too loud. Okay, good. Well, we have a great episode today. Kieran Flanagan, who is the chief marketing officer at Zapier and the former SVP of marketing at HubSpot, is here with us talking about how brands and marketers need to prepare for a world where AI is everywhere and it's changed everything that we know. So just some light stuff, easy yeah. topics. Easy breezy. Uh, but yeah, but it was, I mean, obviously like cool conversation, timely conversation, a lot of, lot, I really think people are going to pull a lot of nuggets from this that actually impact like how they are marketing in the near term. So I'm excited for this interview to get out there. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Sylvie, how are we? What's What's got you talking too loud? Well, as I uh, mentioned before, I am on my way to Europe, to Portugal specifically. Heyo. Very excited about that. Haven't been to Europe in a long, long time. We're Gonna... talking six weeks, 10 weeks since you've been there? <laughs> We're talking some years. Okay. When was the... I can't even remember the last time I was there. But yeah, I'm very excited. I've never been to Portugal. Gonna go to Lisbon. Amazing. And down south to the Algarve region. Hopefully, you know, find some tinned fish. I'm really into tinned fish. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's like big for you, but I'm a big tinned fish. Tinned fish. Like, no, you know, I... sardines and mackerel and okay, fish in a tin. <laughs> Great. That's and beaches lovely. and culture and museums and, you know. And tinned there's, fish. There's more. You can get tinned fish in other places. You um, sure can, but yeah. it won't be as fresh or as beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's got you talking too loud over there? Well, I'm very excited because we are continuing to transform my setup here. Um, it's looking so good. And so, you know, we've got the last time I think we had the walls painted. Now we have more lights. Um, and I've got three, one, two, three. Uh, I've got this like teleprompter set up with an iPad. So I, when I see you, I'm looking into a camera, but I see your face. It's wild. This the is something I've always... The intensity yeah. of your eye contact is real. That's what we're going for. But uh, it feels good to be upgrading the setup. I had an initial setup um, that served me very well. And now, like, I make so much content. You and I make content together, do webinars, live events, other people's podcasts, record videos internally, record videos externally. So it, it makes sense. Like, this one camera, if it looks good, it makes everything easier. Looks matter, guys. Hate to say Looks, it. Hate, wow. hate to say it. You heard it here first from Sylvie. Sylvie <laughs> Judge Lebeau. all the books by all Looks, the covers. Looks matter. The only thing that matters about a book is its cover, which is all that shows up in the Kindle app anyway. So like that's See? what we're working with. See? Yeah. Yeah. 
Good. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that matter, how's that for a transition? Loved Let's it. jump into this conversation with Kieran about marketing AI, what you need to do to get ready. What are the channels that are going to stay good? What are the channels that are going to be bad? Let's do it. Let's do it. That got a little shimmy going for me. I was excited. Hey, oh. <laughs> Karen, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited that you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. <clears throat> um, I'm excited. I'm excited to be on. <laughs> <laughs> and we're excited that you're here. Um, and I know you're you're a pro at the podcast game, so we're just gonna go fast and loose. We're gonna get right into this thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, as you know, the show is called Talking Too Loud, and it's called Talking Too Loud because I am a child, and when I get excited, I cannot <laughs> control the volume of my voice. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, when we talk about marketing or creative or entrepreneurship, I get extremely loud. Uh, but we love to start the show by talking to our guests about what has them talking too loud these days. What's got you excited? So I'd love to know what's what's got you excited. What's got you talking too loud? All right. I'll go for something outside of like tech, because hopefully not all of our lives are defined by tech. And I'm also kind of a weird person. So like I'm pretty like, uh, oh, good. Oh, I, I know yeah. that about myself. And so I get obsessed by things. Uh, I, I am super obsessed by like strategic games. And so I, I played a lot of chess and then got really into, I used to play poker when I was younger and then mm -hmm. never really had time to play it. I still do not have time to play it, but I am fascinated by the psychology of it. So before I go to bed, because I have this weird uh, work life because I'm managing a most people who are based in like San Francisco and I'm based in Ireland. So like <laughs> my, my work life is very, very odd. And so I don't like, I usually go to bed at 2am. And so I have this kind of, but I have to switch off because my brain races. And so I started to watch like poker to switch off. And <laughs> I am just like, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the game. I'm fascinated by the psychology. I'm fascinated by how you can disassociate yourself from money. And I was watching a poker hand where the entire pot between two people is worth 3 million. And you have to like make incredible decisions about like what you feel that person is doing versus what you're doing. And it's kind of like somewhat baked in math, math. So I can talk about it forever. Like this is like I guess the point of your question is like yeah, and I I just find that stuff like super interesting the way humans adapt to certain environments. Yeah, no, I find it interesting too. I used to play poker in college and then kind of like didn't play as much, but I always loved it. Um, yeah, and I love the aspect of trying to read someone in particular. That's like right. you know. But then recently I realized there's like game theory optimal oh, and all this stuff. It's incredible. And I tried to get into it, but it takes a lot of work. Have you gotten into that at all, the GTO game? Yeah, I so it's very similar to you. I used to play it, and I, I used to play it like years ago, and I thought it was like a uh, like a pretty simplistic game where you were just trying to read the the decisions your opponent were trying to make. And now there's game theory, and now you realize that the professional poker players are some of the smartest people in the yeah. world, yeah. right? Like they can hold an incredible amount of math plus. Uh, different scenarios that they have to do based upon what your actions are. And like, and so I, I understand parts of it, but could I actually uh, play a game using game theory? No, no way. Uh, I'm, I don't think I'm anywhere near there, but I, but I have learned like a couple of things that are like very, very like simple things that I had never even thought of before. Um, but I think like it is one of the things I want, I actually started to try to use ChatGPT for is to go back and forth as with that as being my poker coach. Yeah, um, did it work? Because oh, wow. I tried that and I couldn't get a good prompt. No, it's not. It's not. A, but I. But I wonder now. How do can, I win the pot? Yeah. The three no, million no, it's dollars. Like, train me on game theory optimal. Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, it's yeah. and yeah. 
but, it, but there's it a huge didn't work. called Prometheus or something like that that I think is based upon AI plus game theory, and you can actually run your different scenarios through that. It it does reduce the one thing is like it's happening in chess, right? There's a the chess became really popular. It was all over the news because oh, there might be cheating, and humans love scandal, yeah. right? Like yeah. chess is really yeah. boring until there's scandal. Yeah. And but the real thing that's happening with chess is like uh, AI is able to start to reduce the you know there's this incredible article or study that was done on AI and talked a lot about how AI would take expertise and commoditize them. And so anyone who had really learned and put a lot of years into learn a skill was going to be at a disadvantage because they get dragged into the middle because everyone now has that skill. Like it's kind of commoditized their expertise. And there's a little bit of that happening across like games like chess and poker where it's kind of like it, it becomes because you know the scenario so, so well through like these AI uh, compositions of like showing you all the things you should do based upon what they do, what cards mm-hmm. you have, that it's kind of like, it takes the, you know, psychology out of it. It's like, okay, well that, this is what I meant to do in this situation. This is what I meant to do in this situation. And if you watch poker now, you'll see some, the professionals go, which, okay, well, I know what I meant to do here. And like, they actually know the exact thing they're meant to do based upon yeah. the, the entire setup. It's then just, do they have any amount of gut instinct to change that behavior? Yeah, it's an interesting problem. You know, I think about it with like, once we had really good AI in um, chess, the best players got better, right? Yeah. Like people yeah. realized, like learned from it and propelled forward. And um, so it's a, it is an interesting thing and an interesting analogy. And I find the same parts of poker interesting that you do, which is like, how do you separate yourself from money? How do you remove sunk costs? How do you like, w- when you're optimizing your bets, relative to pot size where it's like you're likely not to win but given the like betting structure of what's happened even though you have a very low chance you actually should stay in and all these like really interesting things that actually i think apply to our jobs day to day but they're hard because the jobs can be so it can be so emotional and there's people and dollars and all this stuff so it it is interesting yeah and and actually, one of the really interesting things is professional poker players will play hands that they probably will lose, but they won't lose a lot of money. But they do that to change the perception of the, the type yeah. of hands that they'll play at the table. So there's all of these like other things happening. And on the AI thing, I, I think that's what, the, what a really interesting topic to discuss on AI, whether we do here or not, is, and I've been thinking about this, which is like c- categories of skills and the kind of like fine like you're fine at this and then you kind of go okay good and great and what you like what the point you made about chess is hey like you could argue that ai takes everyone who's like fine and okay and into the good bucket and the question is does it take anyone who is in the great bucket and make them even better right does it just commoditize things and drag mm-hmm. everyone up and then kind of start to drag people down or does it take the best like five percent of people and actually make them much, much better. And so they still do have that differentiation of skill set, and they still are as valuable. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing. Like, does it commoditize and do, is it deflationary for wages or actually do you still have a certain percent of people who are just much, much better at that thing than others? I mean, that's a super interesting topic. We're going to get it. And I want to go deeper on AI, but first I want to zoom back out a little bit um and introduce you to everybody so uh <laughs> you you are the cmo at zapier um you're also uh formerly the svp of marketing at hubspot and you've you've been in the b2b marketing game for a while and i would love if you could just tell me and also tell our audience like what does great marketing look like today oh darn that is a good that is a good question um i think there's two parts of marketing right? There is brand, which is really being crystal clear on why you exist. 
And this is a really good line. Actually, I'm stealing this a little bit from Joanna Lord, who we talked to recently, who's XCMO's class past. And growth, which is like getting the word out there of why you do exist, right? There's two parts, like the creation of demand and the capture of demand. I think incredible market is, I think incredible marketing is getting really simplistic messaging into your brand that's differentiated, but like it's super clear. I'll give you a really good example. There was this incredible advertising campaign recently from Ikea. And it was a really great example of marketing because it said a lot without having to say much. And it was this ad and it started with a camera and it was panned into a cot or a crib. I don't know what you call them in the US. We call them a cot, which is like yeah, crib, where, the yeah. Crib. Yeah. 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 where the baby sleeps. And it was, and it, it just had like, it was so focused and you couldn't see if anyone was in it or not. And it started to pan out and it was empty. And then it panned out again. And the baby was like lying on the mother's chest in the bed. And the message was uh, Ikea proud to be second best. And that's an example of like clear brand messaging, creative, saying a lot without having to say much. And I think when you look in B2B, everyone's basically we're all faster, you know, ease of use, fast, cheap. We we all know the the things because that's typically how people buy software, but you have Mm -hmm. to stand for something more than that. Like I think you have to differentiate yourself in more unique ways. And then I think the the second part of that is just having an incredible go-to-market motion where you can actually have repeatable, scalable ways to actually capture that demand. And what I find in B2B is, because this is the way founders actually choose their marketing leader is like, oh, well, I, I really believe like, I have a bias towards brand and product position and that's the person I wanna hire. Or I have a bias towards like go to market and that's a person I should hire. What actually like incredible B2B marketing has both, right? It has like both sides of the coin. I love that, yeah. I think I like the way you broke that down and also the bring it back to the Ikea example because like it is there we, whether or not people like it or if, they're, if they don't like it they're very late to the game like emotion <laughs> matters right like right. and our customers are human beings and so if you don't have a brand that means something you're just you're you're basically just making your life harder for yourself and, and same thing if you don't have a consistent go to market motion which I I kind of want to dig in a little bit there for folks too of what that can look like you know, when you're at the scale of Zapier and you're growing and you have, I know, a huge organic piece of the puzzle and you all these different, like, how does that process work? I think is something that folks would be interested in hearing about. Like, how do you help humans through that part of the story? Like, what does it feel like? What does it look like? On the go-to-market motion piece, like mm-hmm. capturing mm-hmm. that demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- look, I think, um, like, I hear this thing in B2B a lot. Actually, I was thinking through this today, which is like, oh, like, what's the strategy? What's the strategy? What's the strategy? The strategy for all B2B technology SaaS companies is, like, pretty simplistic, which is, like, you have to, like, have repeatable ways to acquire customers, get them to be engaged within your product, and get them to upgrade and use the product more often so they go up through the tiers, right? And do that more than you actually lose customers so you have net dollar positive retention. And so then it just comes into, like, okay, well, what are the commonalities between channels that allow you to actually scale that go to market? And there's not actually a lot in B2B, right? Like you have product channel fit with search. So you have some way that you can actually have informational search that surrounds your product and transactional search. And that's like HubSpot has done that really well, where we have very low search traffic for someone looking for the inbound marketing platform, but we can help you in all of the things that you can do around marketing or sales, customer success. And then over time, you'll end up using that platform or a small percentage of you use that platform. You have virality where the product shares itself, and we've all seen examples of that. Loom, Calendly, all of these different things. Zapier is a good example of a 
growth engine through search, through the kind of app, app directory marketplace they had, but also be the example of being a category leader because they created the no-code space for, for that category. And so you have incredible word of mouth and that category leader gets you, uh, gets you a lot of runway. And so you have like really virally searched, maybe like mobile companies for the most part, mobile games companies fit really well with paid. It doesn't really become the pre premier channel within B2B. I don't think it's usually the most scalable channel within B2B. And then outside of that, like that's really, that's really it, right? Like social, all of these other things are like good to have and can impact those core channels. But if you want to become a really, really big business, if you don't have search fit, if you don't have virality fit, word of mouth or incentivized or like the Dropbox model, if you don't have maybe some form of pay, but I always think that's a secondary channel for B2B, not a primary channel. You're likely going to be an enterprise company doing outbound marketing. Like, you know, that, that, that is the truth. And so I think that when you look at the SaaS technology B2B space, it's a puzzle and everyone has like different pieces, but it all kind of comes together in, in similar ways. And so I, I think the really thing that matters for companies is, I don't know, I've gone on a tangent here, but the thing that really matters is not so much the strategic, it's like the tactics. And I think what I've realized over the course of like the big bloat of like technology companies is you have a lot of people who know how to, how to do strategy memos and maybe have lost the ability to like do tactics, which is like the, the line by line of what are we going to do and, be, and be basically execute on that. Um, and then the prioritization. So being able to understand at any given point in time in your growth, if you're a series A company, you could take on less things than a public company, but prioritization matters across the entire stack of a company's growth from A to B to C to public. And if you're prioritizing the right things, and you were able to like get deep into the tactics and shift the right things. And like, they are the companies, in my opinion, that excel. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I, I love the way you broke that down. I mean, I think you hit on a few of the different core elements that you, and I think your point is definitely what I've heard from, from other folks is like, you can't get big unless you have one of these core engines working, right? Like right. you cannot scale just to, the math doesn't make sense. And it's weird. Cause I think a lot of folks go default to paid acquisition. I think, I, I don't know why that is. If it's because of like e-commerce in particular, it seems like you can drive like a lot of growth there. Um, but you get, that seems like the easy answer when you talk about having a scalable customer acquisition cost, right? Is right. like, oh, well then it's paid. It's a, that's obviously if you spend a thousand bucks, you get a customer like just go do it all day. But the truth of it is it usually doesn't work like that. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. you have to have these other engines, I think, going and word of mouth and like connections from person to person really matter. Yeah, and I think this comes into like, what what is defensible in marketing in a, let's, let's imagine there's a post Google Word or a Google World or a world where search is much more diminished. And I do think like things that are incredibly important for B2B brands to excel at, like you guys do this is like, Media, right? I, and I think the thing when I say media, people are like, oh yeah, like a blog. There is a big difference between people who truly do media and people who do SaaS content marketing. Like, yeah, I, I'm talking about like being able to create things that are that are part of the the internet culture, that are part of the way that people entertain themselves. Like, there's just a different way that you create that content. But I think media because you want to have not just the content that people want when they are trying to search for something. Like that helps you to be a trusted source of information when that person has a need. But I think more and more B2B companies need to become a trusted source of information, but also entertainment each and every day. So you have a connection with these 
people outside of like searching through Google. The second thing is community, right? I think community is very defensible because you own the community. You're not relying on a third party platform that they change what they do, then it changes up your distribution engine. I think those two things are incredibly important for like B2B brands to, to actually master. Now we're going back to AI. I want to put these together a little bit because you made reference to this. I'm not sure everyone gets exactly what you, when you talk about, oh, search is diminished. I know you're talking about Bard, right? And you're, and you're, and that's one example, but um, just for those who don't, are not following this as closely as you and I, who might be listening and they're thinking like, what is Bard? Or like, I've heard Bard, they've talked about Bard, I've seen Bard, but like, can you just talk through for the audience? Like, what does that actually mean? And then like, from there we can go to, what I want to get to basically is AI affecting the different parts of marketing and Bard showing up in search is one example, but there's, there's a bunch of other ones. And I think I want to get back to the heady conversation where we're really like unsure of what's going to happen. Cause that, that's also where I'm, I'm thinking too, is like, what does that mean for media? What does it mean for right. virality? What does it mean for right. recommendations? Like there's all these questions, but first, if you could just set the stage. Yeah. Like uh, I made this like joke that AI, AI is resurrecting uh, old legacy born software, because if you look at on Twitter, Photoshop is like the hottest yeah. app on Twitter. And then like, <laughs> you know, you had news articles last, last month that Bing is actually catching Google in terms of search market. Now it's still like they gained 2% and Google lost 1%. And you know, there's, there's still a whole, huge gulf, but if we just yeah. step back, okay. Like I think we should start, I know people have heard of chat but let's just start there and then go to Bard because the reason Perfect. to start there is what, what's really interesting about what happened with chat is that was a a different UX experience on an existing model, right? So like that existed through APIs and they, they, it was like a fun project and they just added a chat feature. And what we learned really rapidly is like humans like to speak to, like speak to like theoretically other humans, right? Like they like mm -hmm. to feel like they're speaking to humans. And we've kind of seen this right through B2B. We saw chat explode as like core part of your go-to-market journey and core part of your customer journey. But then we, we had, proof that that chat experience for people is much, much better than the kind of click around things and trying to find things because it exploded to hundred million. And so what Google have done is like, okay, well, I didn't, I you know we're going to be forced into doing this quicker than we think, because, Hey, maybe this is good for the world. Maybe this is bad for the world, but we're, you know, our stock price. So, you know, we have to do it. And so, um, <laughs> Bard AI is really just a extension of feature snippets, right? They've been doing this for some time, which is like trying to find the thing that you want and put it onto the homepage. You don't ever have to click on that link. And there is a whole other conversation that like, wh where do we go here? But breaks the synergy between like a content publisher. There was like a, an established partnership between a content publisher and Google, like this unwritten rule where, Hey, we give you content, you give us some traffic, but Bard is really just an extension of feature snippets. Okay. What did we see with feature snippets? And we had seen all this in HubSpot. I've seen it in many other companies that the overall click through rate on your results on the first page start to decline and the amount of traffic you can get from existing keywords that have not changed in position start to decline. So even if Google keeps its dominance, the fact that the feature snippet is now head and shoulders above everything else. And it's just this huge dominant space on the top of the uh, search result pages means it is going to decline. But the other super interesting thing is, okay, let's play this out and say that, Hey, user behavior is showing us that maybe they don't want to click, 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 click on the blue links anymore. They just want to talk to something, get the results and have it all planned for them. Wow. That's like a huge departure from where we are today, but not just because that's a huge departure from the Google blue links. It's because 
there is a ton of open source models, like multiple, multiple open source models that all have these different chat experiences. So now if Google's blue links are commoditized and they're forced to compete in chat, they have to compete against thousands of other chat experiences that will all look kind of similar. And so they've mm -hmm. lost that market dominance overnight. Now it's not gonna happen overnight, but I think the thing is you have to either believe that people will want the combination of the chat and the blue links or that people really will just gravitate towards the chat. And I think over time, people are going to gravitate towards the, ch the chat and the blue links are going to look really, really archaic and old. That's wild. <laughs> Sorry. I'm it taking is, no. it in. Okay. It is wild. And I think it's, it's you, you said something in there that I've been thinking about a lot, which is like, we like to talk to a human. And, you know, especially, you know, if you're a remote worker, it's like you're probably talking a lot in Slack or text right. or discord or WhatsApp or whatever the place is that you communicate with people. And it doesn't feel that different to have another thread that's with an AI. And, uh, I think an interesting thing I'd, I'd love to hear your take on is, you know, one of the challenges with chat is that the input looks the same everywhere. Like if you go to chat GPT or you go to Bing chat today, or you go to Poe or you go to any of these, the inputs blank box <laughs> and there's no results yet. So it's, right. it's also like, it's hard to know it, on a one hand, it, I guess it does make more of like a level playing field. I hadn't really thought about it like that. And it's also interesting because it feels like you're going to build trust with the chat that you like for different things. Like I trust mid journey, for example, to give me a better image than I do from like Dolly. Right. And so I, my default is like, I, why spend time on Dali? Like if I want to generate something, I'm going to go to mid journey and go do it. And then how does that shift? It's just very, it feels different than like the blue links. I agree with you. And even something about calling it blue links also, by the way, makes it I know. sound crappy. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it like harkens back to Yahoo. You know, it's just like, oh right. yeah, your list of links. Yeah. You like your yeah, links here? Web directory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then in that world, which it seems like we're going to, it's a question of when right? Like when is that your default for most searches? We talked about, you know, basically leaning into these other level levers of growth, right? So for B2B, like you talked about virality with your product. Uh, we talked about media. Uh, there's like probably like a long tail of, you know, um, integration play you could make, like there's building the category, community are those are those the main ones are there other things that you think people should be thinking about like let me phrase this as a better question what would you tell somebody if they knew that three years from now they couldn't rely on google what would as right. a b2b marketer what would you tell them yeah and so i want to be really honest because i feel like sometimes people come onto podcasts and like oh this is what you should do i really don't know what happens when you don't yeah. have search as like a dominant <laughs> place to because like yeah. i was talking to someone like I'm glad I got to spend a lot of my career in the search dominant era because it's just like a lovely motion, right? You you can rank, you can look at the traffic come in, you know it's scalable, repeatable, you can quantify it in customers. Like what a great time to be a marketer. And I think what's happening in marketing t t uh, and is going to continue to happen is even if you look at just today, what are the platforms that's growing in audience, right? TikTok, short from video, all of these kind of like engaging media formats where people start to spend their time. Like even Google agnostic of AI, TikTok is a, is going to take up some of its search dominance mm -hmm. in certain categories, mm -hmm. not, not across the board, but in certain categories. 
And so all of these platforms are actually not great for direct conversion from marketing tactics, which is like, I can see someone, I can see someone clicked on something and became a customer. We're going back to like the world of pre-internet web two, where marketing was much more reliant on like indirect causality, right? Like I, we are doing these things and some, something good is happening. We can kind of correlate it, but we can't say directly to the CEO and founder, Hey, here's the nice chart to say, this is exactly the revenue marketing are generated. And people were like, there was a lot of unhappiness in that phase because marketing struggled to like really articulate the core thing that they were bringing to the table. And so I think if you like look at three years out and we are already going down that road and even Facebook and Google are going to make some changes, I think to the way that they show return on ads spend or return on advertising spend, they're going to show you not just the direct revenue that's attributed to your ads. They're going to start to show you the correlated revenue that's attributed to their ads. And I think they're doing that because they realize that we are going to get less and less data to be able to show you what you're getting back from our advertising, but we want to show you totality. It is doing something good. And so I think that's the way that marketers are going to have to think, right? Like if the, if the most, uh, incredible brands are starting to think that way, there's probably something in it for us to think that way. I go back to like a all in podcast episode. I listened to November, 2001 and Shamath was like, Hey, if Elon Musk is selling his stock, yeah. maybe you should sell your stock. And I'm like, damn, I should have sold some stock. Yeah. 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 That was an insane episode. I remember listening to that myself thinking, nah, Shamath doesn't know. What he's yeah. Doing. I was like, like nah, yeah. And then like going, six months, I was like all the way ah! up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I remember that, right? Like, okay, well there's you, of course, like the smartest, people and companies in the world are doing one thing. It's probably like, there's a reason for that. And so I think in three years time, you should own more of your audience directly. So like community podcasts, newsletters, like all of these things, like how can I have a more direct relationship with my audience? The other thing is I think product led growth is going to be a, a shining light within like the next, it's, it's going to continue to grow in popularity because that freemium layer of your product can start to capture demand agnostic of platform. And I think actually that's going to continue to grow in, in importance. And I think marketers are going to have to get really good at articulating their strategy, the reason they are doing the things they are doing to founders, because I think marketers sometimes get lazy where it's just like, here's the chart, right? Like this is the money you put the slot machine, you put this much money in the slot machine, this much money come out of the slot machine. Sure. But like, why do you believe you're doing the things you are doing and why are they the right things to do? So I think it's on marketing leaders to be able to describe to their CEO and founders who sometimes struggle with that, like the brand part, the product positions part, like why does that even matter? But I think those things are gonna matter much, much more. So we're gonna to have to be able to articulate why that's so. And then just to go further in that, um, you know, if in a world where like, let's imagine we're already there, or you're maybe in an industry where there isn't a lot of direct search demand, but there is a lot of demand for your product um, and you're there today, you're saying like people need to really think about like as a marketer, almost to what traditional marketing has been. How do you evoke an emotion? How do you have like an unfair advantage? And you're talking about own channels and stuff. And then I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on CAC and like customer acquisition cost and like, what should people strive for? How should they measure that in this world? Do you think it's best to like look overall at all the activities you're doing or break it into buckets across? Yeah. Because like even, you know, podcasting is a good example. Um, we've been doing this podcast. This is like episode number Sylvia, you 74, 70, 74 or one, something like that. And what we've seen is like, uh, we have it on the site and we have it on all the apps. We look at hours spent with the brand 
And we see that if people come to the website and they engage there, some percentage of them like buy accounts and sign up and a higher percentage of them convert. Um, so that seems really good. And then we also know that the majority of the listening happens in the apps. At this point, it's like 85% versus at the beginning, 85% was on the site. So we're looking at this, we're looking at the traffic on the site, then we're taking a guess at that there's gonna be a different level of conversion for folks who are listening to the app, but we think there's a conversion. We come up with an overall thing and then we decide like, hey, this is this seems like it's working or it could work better or what have you. Uh, but it's kind of fuzzy. It's fuzzy yeah, to get yeah, all yeah, the yeah. way there. So like, yeah, I'm yeah, just, yeah. and I feel like there's going to be more of this. There's going to be yeah, more of this type 100%. of thing, right? Yeah. And it's like, I'll move that number here. I'll move that number there. I'm not going to move it back there because it looks better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's also like, it's interesting because it's, I find that the qualitative matters a lot. And so mm. when the numbers 100%. were small, we paid attention, but now I will hear, oh, it came up in these sales calls or I'll hear from someone, I happen to run into the person like, hey, actually, I really love this episode that you just did with XYZ. I'm exactly. like, that's, if you're telling me that, that seems like a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fuzzy. And, and it's also then to do it at scale, you're making a lot of investments where you know that they might work incredibly well, but if they work incredibly well, a lot of it's gonna show up as direct. Right. And it's, right. Right, it's gonna show up as a strong brand, people searching for the brand coming in. Is that how, what you see too? Is that how you think about it? Yeah, I think there's three buckets and like part of this is based on, so like one of the things I did at HubSpot was led the, led the acquisition of the hustle. And so I had to really start to think through a little bit of this because we had always been much more focused on like direct attribution and HubSpot go to market engine is just phenomenal. And it's like yeah. a finely tuned, uh, it's, it's a finely tuned thing. And the reason that the reason the hustle deal mattered to us, I think everyone, when I, when I saw it got written about, it was like, Hey, like this makes a lot of sense because they can capture leads. It was like not about leads at all. Um, it was really about the point that I made earlier, which is, Hey, there's this other talent that really matters. And that talent knows how to like really create content that gets virality, really engage in, has an owned audience, but it's a different way you have to measure that. And so the ways that I thought about that was there's two core kind of core ways. I think you can measure indirect. And I will say no company knows how to, every company has the same thing. Like I spent so many times with different company, B2B companies who do a lot of indirect and it's all like, yeah, we have this assumed model. It's all assumptions. So it's just like, what yeah. assumptions do you want to take? Yeah. But the way we, the way I thought about it was, okay, we had two metrics, which is the amount of captured demand that, that directly uh, turns into customer revenue. And we could look at, that's, that's a pretty easy LT, like CAC to LTV model. Then there's the value of the owned audience. And so like our podcast network that we created and uh, all the newsletter and all of the things we created that we knew were indirect and we purposely told, you know, when we sold it to the board and all of that, like it was like an indirect thing, but we had a monetary value against how much it would cost us to reach that audience. And so you can get the average CPM rates on all of these different platforms. And you can say, well, we are owning this audience versus renting this audience. So this, that amount of value we've, we've acquired versus the amount of value it's taken us to actually acquire that. And that's, so that's one way you can do it. The other one is like just, you know, a, a really well-known tactic within B2B, which is incrementality, which is like for a lot of advertising, you can break up the US into certain regions and you can have it on and off in certain regions and then look to see how it correlates to revenue within those regions. And that's how we do it in Zapier. We do a lot of incrementality testing. So we actually have an, we have an indirect ROAS and we have a direct ROAS. So we can actually see the return on our ad spend or see the return on our efforts by doing this kind of incrementality model. Podcast is a really hard one. Like I, I think podcast is hard to do with incrementality because you can't like turn your podcast off or, and then just yeah. turn it on like in this yeah. city. And then my, the, my last point I would make is 
we're just going to have to get back to having conviction, right? Like, it's been great. Like, remember the days when I could look at the keywords and I could see like the exact ROI I got at every single keyword on organic search? Like, but we're just, ha we're getting further and further away from that. And I think that means we're going to have to have conviction in the things that we want to do and actually just take some more like risks. And I think that's actually good for marketing because I think data has been great, but it's also forced us all into the middle to do the same type of things because they are like, oh, well, everyone, this just kind of works and maybe has like diminished some of the creativity. I love that. Uh, and it's funny because when you said conviction, it's so simple and yet it hits, right? Uh, yeah, like yeah. it's, it hits like that's, that's one of those things. It's like, you're going to have to have conviction what you're doing. You're going to have to believe in it. It's like, well, exactly. you didn't have to for a while there, which is, but like now you do. And it's, it's interesting to, as I, as you were saying, that was also making me think about startups. Like, and if you don't know what you just missed in terms of the keyword factor, you're just, that's all you would have. Like the default would have to be that. So it's just interesting. Cause it's like this, the companies that grew a lot during this time period and got used to that, it's pretty hard to get used to having really direct numbers and then going to indirect and then going to belief. But yeah. I do agree with you. I feel like it's a transition that people have to get through. Um, and it's something, it's, it all comes back to like the fact that it's B2B or B2C. It's like human beings, the entertainment value is another thing I was thinking about you said there, which is just like the value of that owned audience and the value of like, you know, I, if I can teach you something while entertaining you, I'm going to beat somebody who can just teach you something. Right. And also we're both going to beat somebody who's just selling you something. And like that order of how those things work. Okay. I want to go back to the beginning because we were talking about AI and saying, does AI for the people at the top, does it make them better or does it bring everyone to the average? You know, does it actually like chop the differentiation away? And I as we're having this conversation, at least where I, where I get to is that if you can take away and, and automate a bunch of the pieces of folks' jobs that used to take a lot of their time, and now they can have more time for building conviction and taking risks and truly understand their customer, I would hope that that would push the people at the top to be better than they were before. How are you feeling? I, yeah, I agree. So so I came into marketing from a failed career in software engineer. I always think through things through that logic, which is all jobs are just a series of inputs, right? Like every job is just like a series of input. And what AI is going to allow us to do is automate away a bunch of those inputs. And so you're left with a couple of inputs that still really matter. And I think to your point, it's like, how do you become 10 X of those inputs, right? Like write-in is a really good example. And so maybe AI strips away research. Maybe it strips away the brainstorming of new, like new articles and it strips away a bunch of things. I, I actually don't think it ever strips away incredible, like final draft of incredible content. Like I don't think I would ever take something from an AI and publish it. It's just not the kind of content that I think would resonate on the internet or stand out from the masses. And that that's because like the angle, the kind of unique angle that you have, the entertainment that you have, the humor that you have, the personality that you have, and maybe just like a couple of ways that you think about that thing differently than anyone else, like those things still matter. And I think the best people will become even better at that because they have what AI really is, is like the most incredible intern at the moment. Like hopefully this is the whole thing. Like at the moment, it's an incredible intern. Maybe it becomes your boss and then like, who, you know, who knows what happens, right? <laughs> but at the moment, it's your most- Today, it's your, your intern, yeah. <laughs> yeah, today, today it's your intern. And like, you know, who knows in five years if we were the intern and then it's like, does it like us or not? But, yeah. but the way I approach it is like, okay, I start everything with, okay, can my intern help me, right? 
and I try to figure out if my intern is good or bad at that. And if it's semi-good, it can help me with some parts. If it can't help me, and then some parts, it's like, oh, it's it's much better than B of that, so we should do that. And I think that's what we're going to have to do is like, okay, well, what can my intern do? What can they take off me? And what can I get much, much better at? Um, but I do think it drags... The interesting thing, I think it drags a lot of people because I've seen this in develop. Like someone released a study in in terms of developers, like a lot of like okayish developers, it drags them up without having to do a lot of the work. So it is mm -hmm. deflationary for that middle bucket. I think in terms of salary and opportunities, like it's going to be much more competitive. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Okay. Karen, I have some rapid fire questions. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and we'll try to do them all if possible, just whatever comes to mind, you, you just go with the answer. We'll see where we go. I love that how you, good? I love how you're teeing this up. Yeah. Sadly. You like that? <laughs> Ready? Go, are, are you sure? Okay. I will go with that's in my head, but I told did, I started this thing telling you I'm a weird person. So just be prepared. Um, we like it. Do you watch succession? Oh yeah. Did you like the finale? I did. No spoilers. After... I haven't seen. There's no okay. spoilers. There's no spoilers. Okay. okay. I did. I I did, but I hope for something different. Okay. Fair. What's the biggest mistake you see marketers making in 2023? Not leading with customer insights. We've got too fixated on data and not talking to customers. Go speak to your customers. Jesus. Like talk yeah, to your customers. There you go. Yeah. Um, what's one brand that's doing it right? Um, I'm going to pick ramp just because they're one of the most incredible, fastest growing stories. And I think it's how they build products, less of the marketing, but they are on fire. Uh, I have a lot of respect for what they're doing. What's one thing all marketing teams should invest in now? Brand and understanding why you're differentiated. Like what, what do you stand for? What is the thing I want to tell the world? What's one thing all marketers should stop doing? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> solution and before you've stated before you've clearly articulated the problem oh yeah nice, nice one um, describe the next year in marketing in three words I, mm, the unknown chaotic incredibly fun that was four but we'll, we'll give, give it, it to you. Uh, incredibly fun will count as one. <laughs> we'll I like that. One. And what should be all marketers North Star metric in 2023? Customer usage, customer happiness. Perfect. Kieran, thank you so much. This cool. was a great conversation. And uh, like, I love that we got in there on a, a lot. We tackled a lot of big stuff that I think is going to be really helpful. And I just appreciate you getting in there and sharing where you're at and also you know, sharing stuff that we're not clear on. Cause I think nobody, we can't know what the future is going to be exactly, but I do think a lot of these things you're talking about investing in own audiences, building a brand, doing it early, um, thinking about these indirect things, having conviction, like these are very important things to start doing before you have to do them. Right. Right. Like, yeah. That's what, yeah. that's what I think about this whole conversation is like, there's a, if, if we could be that conversation, like all in for somebody else, I would hope they would be, people hearing this thing like years from now, oh, I should, if I had done that, I would have been better off than this situation where I did. I just relied on these other things I'm doing today. Yeah. I do think AI means that fast followers or fast movers are more rewarded than they've ever been before. And laggards are more penalized than they've ever been before. 
I agree. That's what it seems like. Um, thank you so much. Where can people connect, best connect with you online to learn more and, and follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at SearchBrat. I Perfect. still go on there occasionally, even though it is a wild, wild, wild platform. <laughs> Are you on LinkedIn? You're on LinkedIn, right? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm actually on LinkedIn way more, actually. Yeah, you can connect me on LinkedIn. I do a ton more on LinkedIn than I do on Twitter. Yeah, same. All right. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Cool. Thanks for having me. Isn't it interesting to think that we are really going to a place where we used to be? Like, which I've been thinking about a lot that, you know, from this conversation and in general, it's like, okay, we had this period of time where you could track literally everything on the internet. GDPR comes along, you can track a lot less. You need permission for cookies. Okay, you can't follow people around with these pixels, blah, 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 blah. Then you still see all the search terms, now you can't see the search terms. Then, oh no, generative AI may take away the ability to have even people coming to your website through search. And so all of these things basically get you back to a place that everything was in pre-internet. But instead, you know what? it's a post-internet world with AI telling us what to do. And that's that's the world that's in front of us. That was the first time that I actually felt comforted about our future. Oh, really? Yes. When Kieran was like, so it's just like going back to, you know, like Web 2. I was like, now we're talking. Now <laughs> we're back. talking. Bring the vinyl back. Well, there was there is something. I mean, he was talking about um, Facebook sort of changing their metrics around like correlative mm -hmm. metrics. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that that I was like, Yes, we're back to a world where like qualitative qualitative data is as integral as quantitative data. And I don't know, there's something about that that feels like inspiring to me. Maybe it's just because numbers scare me. I don't know. Well, it's also that everything will not be the same in this world. Yes. Uniqueness is valued. Being different Unique, is valued. Yes. Yes. That, and, all, and all of that. Yes, sorry, I'm getting no, excited. I, yeah, no, I know you're. You get excited, <laughs> but it's but it's it is funny because it's like that. All of those pieces, and it, when he said the third thing people need to do is have conviction. The craziest part of that is how far folks have gotten without it. It's crazy. Yeah. I think he's also. I'm sure we've had other guests come on and talk about this, but I feel like Kieran really broke down, like sort of the reliance on data and the fact that like becoming less reliant on data is going to force marketers to take more risks and like really lean into their creativity. That's also like super exciting. Yes. Yeah, no, I think it, it is all like, it is, it is exciting. If you like being creative, it's exciting. If you like, if you're comfortable with types of risks, it's exciting. If you like, qualitative data talking to customers. And I think it is going to, it is going to change like who the marketers are right over the long term. That's the other thing. It's like, um, you're still, there's still going to be certain things that you need to track incredibly closely. And I think that's a, another good point of like assigning these value metrics of these different things. And it's like, you know, a good example, I think I could give that's like pretty concrete is we, we do some sponsorships and newsletters. We know how much it costs to sponsor those newsletters. We know the CPM. So in our own newsletter, well, like how much is that worth? Mm -hmm. And if you start to put those pieces, it's a very simple thing that he said, but I think it's like, it's something that if you can 
it's easy to not do, I guess is my point. And then it's easy to underinvest in. It's also interesting, I thought what he said, which is he's never seen a B2B company that's gotten big just with advertising. Yeah. Which is like kind of surprising. I think people assume with like having consistent customer acquisition costs that that's what that means. And that like from his vantage point, he's never, he's never seen that. And I, I can only think of a couple that have gotten really big just with advertising and then they couldn't sustain it because of course you get more competitors in the space that price, the advertising goes up. It's a hard thing to do. Yeah. I mean, also speaks to the importance of product led growth, which he talked Absolutely. about too. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was lots a good one. Of, lots of good, lots of good stuff in there. Lots, lots of, of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. Well, look, um, if you're watching the show, thanks for watching. If you're listening, Thanks for listening. Give us we some qualitative you. feedback, you know? Give us some qualitative feedback. You can always tweet it at us. Um, you know where to find us, C Savage, and give me the loot. You can find us on LinkedIn. Love a LinkedIn comment. Uh, love it. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Tell us about other guests you think we should have. We'd love to hear from you on that. If you prefer to keep your comments to dark social, <laughs> you can send us an email. TTLpod at wistia.com. <laughs> Or if you'd like it to be public, very public, you can always rate and review the show. Always lovely to have those as well. Um, that's it. Thank you so much. Until next time. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.